Hey, this is Leslie, host of the Rogue Ones podcast. Thank you for listening to this show. You know, I did this limited series in 2018 and 2019. The world was a wildly different place, but knowing that people are still listening to it now and benefiting from these stories brings immense satisfaction. So thank you. If you want to keep up with my own rogue adventures, you can follow me on Substack. Yes, I have one too. An easy link to find that is leslieethompson.com slash Substack. I write on there frequently, but then I'll also post audio vignettes that don't fit into a typical podcast framework. I've been busy, and I bet you have been too, Rogue One. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope to hear from you soon. Now, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. You're now listening to the Rogue Ones podcast, conversations with extraordinary people doing fascinating things that will encourage us to live with a bend toward the remarkable. You might be someone who does several things to make up your quilted career of income. Well, today's episode was developed just for you. I talk with a drummer from Louisiana playing very successful tours and highly competitive gigs, but who also manages the tours he's on, and he has a desk job. Keep listening to hear how he does it all. Hello, listener. This is the Rogue Ones Podcast, and I am Leslie Eiler Thompson, your host and creator of the show. If you want more of the Rogue Ones Podcast, you can go to rogueonespodcast.com, where I post about each episode, some behind-the-scenes information, there are easy sharing links there, and I also have some Rogue merch for you to get for your Rogue journey, and even a playlist compiled by Rogue listeners. Check it out. This episode I have for you today is with Brandon Hayes, and it explores the notion of roles we play and balancing passion with practicality. Brandon is a Nashville-based music professional in many roles and responsibilities. Not only is Brandon a husband and father, but professionally, Brandon has a beautiful patchwork quilt of activities that not only pay the bills, but feed his passions, of which there are many. As a musician, Brandon plays drums for major touring artists. As a tour manager, he goes out on the road with artists, keeping schedules and activities on focus. And as a music publishing coordinator, he manages the writing and distribution of songs. Here's what I want you to listen for today. One, how Brandon used previous poor experiences to inform what he ultimately should be looking to do long-term. Two, how his conviction for what he loved never left him. And three, how he worked to tear down invisible mental barriers for a better life of productive and full work. So, please enjoy this conversation with my friend, Brandon Hayes. Okay, so Brandon Hayes, here we are. Here we are. You listening don't know that we just went through a really fun bonding experience in we which did. we had to figure out all sorts of technical things. Yep. And thank goodness for Brandon's background, which is varied and full. Yeah, it brought me back to a dark place there for a minute, but when we got it working, I, I feel better. I do too. I feel much better. So, Brandon, the reason why I'm really excited about this conversation is I think there is a great conversation to be had about roles mm. that we play in what I call a rogue lifestyle, but but the idea of a quilting uh, your career together with different backgrounds and interests. And you strike me as someone who has a lot of different roles. I do. And it's fantastic. Yeah. And they're in very different worlds. Um, and I think in a town such as Nashville, it's very easy to get pegged into 
I am a this person. Oh, yeah. And so we're just, we're going to dive into all of it. Yeah. But as, as Julie Andrews says so well, let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> a very good place to start. It's a very good place to start. Down in Louisiana. <laughs> so you are from Louisiana. I am from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Actually, it's like just north of Louis- Baton Rouge, but that's kind of like boring to tell people. So I always just say Baton Rouge. Okay. Born right. and raised. Like both my wife and I are like kind of like this Louisiana heritage. We kind of love it. And and your up. jambalaya apparently is amazing. I wouldn't. I can't claim credit for the recipe. Oh. Only for the execution, mm. which is marvelous. Which is is it half? Is that half the battle? Is the yeah? I mean, it, kind right? of. Like honestly, jambalaya specifically. If we're gonna just talk about Cajun food for a minute, can we please? Uh, it's like Fisher Price easy, but mm. like to do it. Uh, a couple years ago, my parents got me this big uh, jambalaya pot, which is like a thirty-gallon black cast iron pot and like you put it over this burner and you have a jambalaya paddle which is like a paddle for a, a paddle bu- yeah yeah <laughs> and it's it's like four feet long and um like you have to you stir it with this thing so it looks like this cauldron and so like people watch you and they they feel very impressed but it's so it's so easy <laughs> i mean it's like cajun people i love cajun people but uh-huh. like we're simple folks right. if, if it was too complicated we probably wouldn't have done it excellent you know what i mean yeah sure exactly so yeah we love Lots of stuff about Louisiana culture and about all the food. And you and started at LSU. You went to LSU, right? I did. So, like, that was 20 minutes down the road. I was a miserable student. Hmm. Like, I was so bad at school. But, like, the music thing, even in high school, like, once I found that, it was kind of like lightning struck. Did you come from a musical family? Um, My dad played drums. Okay. Oh. And... um. It was awesome. Like, I have to credit so much of my music education to my dad. Mm. All, all my family, like, they all love music. Like, if you go to a wedding, I guarantee you my mother is the first person on the dance floor. Uh, my sister also is, like, a marvelous singer, and she and her husband are, like, these swing dance champions. My dad uh, is this fireman, and mm. he loves to fish, and so he's kind of this, like – He's just kind of this down-home Louisiana guy. But he was very intentional about my music education growing up to where when I was like five or six and he was bringing me to kindergarten, I would want to listen to like Wheels on the Bus, like a dumb five-year-old. And he would be like, nope, sorry, we're listening to James Taylor this week. And I would be like, no, I don't want to listen. But he would just be like, sorry, man. And then one week he would be like, nope, this is Tom Petty week. And this is Stevie Wonder Week. And it was intentional. He did that on purpose. Yeah, he would just kind of say, we're going to listen to this music because this is good music and you need to know it. When I was eight, he got me a Buddy Rich Big Band CD and Mm. the Tower of Power anthology. (laughs) And I like at the time, I was just like, that was just the music I was listening to. But looking Mm. back, I'm like, what a hip eight year old. So varied. I know. Yeah, I know. It's like, what a weirdo I probably was. Yeah. I'm sure all of my friends thought I was. Where did he come to have his music education. He just he played in cover bands in the 70s ah. and 80s. He was in a band mm-hmm. called Cobra where he played double bass drums and sang high harmony on like on Ros- like, on like Rosanna Ro- <laughs> or like oh my there's a, apparently a recording of him playing Tom Sawyer somewhere that I haven't heard. Um, but I'm sure he just crushed it. There's this kind of like story that's evolved into like Hayes family folklore of him selling his drums to buy diapers. And so oh, whenever wow. I like decided I was going to do the music thing, mm-hmm. they were so supportive mm. of just like, we. I didn't get a chance to do this thing. Yeah. And anything we can do to help you, we want to. So so LSU, but you didn't actually finish no, I LSU. Didn't. No, I 
started as a classical performance major playing drums. Ah. So like I did the marching band thing in high school because mm -hmm. I'm super cool. And <laughs> I like I mentioned I was such a terrible student and like that was the only thing I could do, the only mm -hmm. thing I really wanted to do. So I like got a scholarship, like a minimal scholarship to go play in the marching band at LSU and to be a music performance major. They were like, you can do music ed or you can do music performance. LSU is not like a place like Belmont or Miami or North Texas where there's a bunch of different music mm -hmm. options. Either you're going to play or you're going to teach. Mm. And I was like, well, I don't want to teach. So Ugh. I took the classical performance path. Whoa. Well, yeah, which knowing what I know now is yeah. not what I was cut out to do. Because mm. I like played drum set in the youth group band and uh, yeah. I played in cover bands. And then I w got there and I was having to practice the marimba for like five <laughs> hours a day. And I was miserable. I hated it. I was so, yeah. And I hated it because I was so bad at it. Mm -hmm. Um, like I, I take it back. I, I, I was pretty good. It, it came relatively naturally, but it was just never the thing I wanted to be doing. Mm -hmm. Like I always wanted to be doing something else. Mm -hmm. And so when I realized I, I, right around that same time I met, uh, I started dating this girl who's now my wife, mm -hmm. this pretty little Italian girl. And I started to think like, man, maybe I should get my life together and stop <laughs> being such a poor student. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't want to be a band director and I don't want to play in an orchestra. So I don't think that this program is for me. Mm. And so I made the decision, not with an end in sight, just like I can't keep dumping money into this degree that I don't want. Yeah. And so I made the decision to stop going to school. And to like at the time, it was kind of dropping out, which yeah. her family loved. Really? No. Oh. <laughs> no. Right. Yes, sarcasm. No, they didn't. Sorry, sarcasm. I needed to lay the sarcasm on a little yeah. thicker. Mm -hmm. uh, and Kate's family, they're wonderful, lovely people. And I'm yeah. so thankful for all of them. Um, and I, now that I'm th now that I have two daughters of my own, if my daughter was dating some guy, you know, <laughs> some guy who didn't finish his music degree, I probably would be questionable about it too. Uh, but to their credit, they still loved us and supported huh. us. And so Kate and I got married, and I wor went and worked at a company called Personas Audio, there in Baton Rouge. Uh, they make audio gear. Oh, I know them well. <laughs> yes, we were messing with one of their products not five minutes ago. Uh, mm -hmm. But, I, yeah, I, at the same time that I was kind of doing the music thing, what I really wanted to do was play drum set at LSU, and, like, that was the thing I wanted to do. I didn't want to play in an orchestra. I wanted to play drums. Where drums. was that? Where was drum set being played at LSU? Uh, there was a big band. Oh, okay. And so I was in the big band, and there were, like, these small jazz combos. Even in the times where I would be successful and I would be doing something, like, let's say I would uh, – let's say I made the big band. That was a big deal for me, mm -hmm. and – even in the successes that I have, there would always be this sort of like, well, you got it because you're the only guy. Oh. Or, mm. you know, there's really not that. Mm. This is a classical school. There's not really that many other people that play drum sets. So it's not that you're good. It's just that they didn't have anyone else. Mm. There's always kind of that, like, voice in the back mm. of my mind that I'm constantly fighting against. And when you live in a town such as the town that we live in, the beautiful town of Nashville, which yeah. we are on Music Row right now, Ocean Way is right behind us. I could hit it with a rock. That's right. I wouldn't. But I no, could. you shouldn't. <laughs> no, I shouldn't. Uh, but insecurity, and often it drives us, I think, sometimes, and then sometimes it holds us back. Yeah. Man, because it, it can be such a gift in some yeah. ways. When I moved to Nashville, I thought I wanted to produce records. That's like what oh, the thing really? that I thought I wanted to do. Yeah. And a buddy of mine told me, at the time, it really discouraged me, but he was like, man, the best thing about Nashville is that you very quickly learn the things that you're never going to be good enough to do professionally. <sighs> that, at the time, was like, well, I could do anything I want. <laughs> you know, like, in my mind, I was like, well, dang it. 
I, I, he was g- doing me a kindness by telling me that yeah. of just like, no, 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 you don't have to come up here and tr- like, there are things that you can do. And the, the whole part of like finding your path or for me, for finding my, finding my path was like finding the things that weren't where I was supposed to be. Mm. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I have three main jobs now that I do. And when I started school at LSU, I didn't know that two of those jobs existed. Mm. So yeah. when I started, I couldn't have had the end in mind. That's right. Because I just didn't even know that you know, they were a thing. So your move to Nashville. Yeah. From where, how did that happen? So while I was working at Personas, um, I just kind of had this unease where like it was a nine to five job and I worked in tech support. And like we talked about earlier, it can be a trying position. But in my mind, I was just so thrilled to be working in something that was music industry adjacent. I wasn't actually working directly in the process of creating music. I was working for a company that sold products to people who created music. Yes, right. And to me, that was like, I was so stoked to just be that close, to mm. be that involved. Mm. After a while, that kind of started to lose its luster, and I thought, oh, maybe. For anybody. I, yeah. I, well, I just thought, for me, I wanted to be closer to the thing, mm-hmm. to the actual creating of the thing. Yeah. Uh, as I was interning in a recording studio then, and I kind of got bit by the bug. By, of like, oh man, recording music and making music is really fun. Uh, and I had this drumming thing that I thought I was good at. I, I felt like I had this gift that I had honed all throughout high school and done like, uh, like in high school, I kind of had like some of these accolades, like all this all state, all of like mm-hmm. region, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, I have this gift that I feel like I'm good at and I love doing. And all I do is play some jazz clubs in New Orleans for tips until two. But I just kind of got tired of playing music while other people drank. Mm. And like I spent a summer uh, before Kate and I got married working on a cruise ship in Alaska playing drums. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, and I kind of had that same experience of like, it was so much fun for half the time. And then a lot of it was just, you would play something cool. And then, you know from performing music, like half the thing is, you have this interaction with the other people on stage, and then whenever the audience responds, you're like, "Yes, yes, that's the greatest the, feeling on the, the planet." It's the trifecta. It yes, is, we've we've done it. It's yes, the greatest thing. It is. And like to like, you were, have you seen La La Land? Have I? Okay, so like you know oh how boy, Ryan Gosling started in the beginning, he yes. has that like great piano moment, and he yeah. like looks up, and, and it's it, just crickets. Yeah, yeah. That was where I was, mm. and so aside from my day job, which I was becoming more and more disenchanted with, and then those experiences, I was just like. I remember coming home one day to Kate and crying mm. and just being like, I feel like if I don't make a change, I'm just going to be remembered as that guy that used to be good at drums. And that thought like just broke me. Sobering. Yeah. And we had been married now for a year or so. And a friend of mine who we went to church with told me about this magical school in Nashville called Belmont, <laughs> where you could come and you could not only play music, but you could be in the actual music industry and at the time i didn't even know what those two words meant but i was like i want like that lady in napoleon dynamite like i I want want that that. (laughs) that's how that's how i felt like so i like convinced kate like we need to go this thanksgiving break we need to go check out belmont and uh to her credit she was just like okay let's go do this and by that time i mean we were both deeply entrenched i mean we were both i was playing drums on Sunday mornings. We were leading a small group. My family was in town. Her family was mm-hmm. an hour in either direction. Like we had deep roots. Um, and so we went and it was like, 
the tour for parents and their kids and it was me and Kate. And so she did all the parent stuff and I did all the kids stuff. <laughs> and by this, and conquer. I know by this point I was like 24, I think. And everyone else was like 16 or 17 on the tour. Yeah. So I felt like the biggest idiot. And, uh, we were kind of got bitten by the Nashville bug. And what like, year was that that you came? That would have been, I started in the fall of 2010. So that would have been November, 2009. Okay. So, I talked to the people. I scheduled an audition to come back in February. And I, like, did not think that I would make it. Mm. Because not only were my grades so poor from LSU, but I just thought this is a big city and, like, some of the best musicians in the world lived here. Mm -hmm. And I come and I audition in February and they like me. And I get a call from the percussion professor that they, like, had one drum scholarship that they were going to give out that year. And I got it. They oh, had like wow. cut funding. And so it actually wasn't even a drum set scholarship. It was a classical one. All these doors that we felt like God was opening uh, for us to go. And we, Kate and I kind of looked at each other and we we're like, I think we're going to move to Nashville. Leave everything. <sighs> wow. Like just the two of us. Yeah. We've been married all of, you know, a year and a half, two years. Hmm. And so whenever we first got married, uh, I worked at Personas while she finished her master's. And then oh, we just decided, we're like, all right, well, we'll switch it. So whenever we get to Nashville. And she's a teacher, right? Yeah. She okay. uh, got her master's in education. And okay. she's like a smarty smart. They like paid her to get her master's, like one of those one type of those people. things. She did it for free. And then they also gave her a grant. And oh, she's my like. Word. Mm. But either way, we moved. And that was like, that was a huge step, leap of faith of just like, I don't know what this thing's going to be, but we wow. just need to try it. Mm-hmm. We just need to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did. Wow. And we moved June 7th of 2010. And Belmont, I, I know a lot of people have a lot of complicated feelings about not just Belmont, but wherever they went to school. Yeah. But I like, I went and it just like, it lit me up. It just rang all my mm. bells because I had kind of gotten done all of my general coursework. So I was only able oh. to focus on the cool stuff. Right. And I was older, so I was the kid that, like, came and sat on the front row with, like, my trapper keeper and, like, asked questions because I cared. From my perspective, having been a two-year inner, at that point, I think I was, like, a sophomore. <laughs> you were the maybe. wily veteran. I was just – I was all green. But what was really fascinating about um, watching you is you were such a leader in – you were wide-eyed just like all of us were. Mm. But you did have these years of wisdom and experience that we could all sense from – the moment they start. But you had this, like, yes, I have all this wisdom and experience, but look how engaged I am and very interested. Because, as you've just said, it got you really excited. And I think that when I watched that, it sparked in me, of this dude who's, like, been through some stuff. You know, I didn't know what you were going through. But, you know, you said you transferred, you took some time off, all these things. It's like, if that dude's interested, I need to be interested as well. So I hope that encourages you. Yeah, that is so kind of you to say. Because when I look back on that time, I just... I feel like I was just the old weirdo. <laughs> like, I feel like that was my, uh, that was what people thought of me. I remember one of my first days of class, I was like awkwardly trying to make friends with these like 17 year olds sure. at the time. Oh, what a difficult situation. Yeah. And I was just trying like, all right, Hayes, you want to make friends, but like, be cool. Uh, <laughs> like These guys are actually cool and you're not cool. Be cool. <laughs> And, and you were what, 24, 25? I was 25. And I remember. Just so young. I know, yeah. <laughs> but at the time, I felt ancient. Like, right. I felt like I had one foot in the grave. Uh-huh. And I remember talking to somebody and, like, feeling like it was going well. Uh-oh. And they were like, How old are you? And I said, Oh, I'm 25. And they said, Cool. My theory professor is 25. No. And I was like, oh. <laughs> okay, well, 
I uh, I had a lot of friends that were younger going through uh, college together and then once we graduated and they got out in the real world they kind of always made fun of me for being older which is fine like my good friends mm -hmm. they, it was kind of like the running joke but then once they graduated I would start to get all these calls of like hey uh, how do you do your taxes or like <laughs> I cannot tell you how many people how many of my classmates called me and said I have a flat tire and I don't know what to do really? or my car won't start or whatever and so yeah. I kind of was able to be this like surrogate big brother that's what yeah it was exactly what was in my head it was yeah you were, it's it sounds like a big brother figure that you kind of like pulled us all along with you i love my time there because mm -hmm. I, I felt affirmed yeah like, i felt like there were people around me that were like no you do have this gifting when i first got to belmont and i was like uh, that fall semester they had the big commercial showcase and the three mm -hmm. acts that were playing were chase foster <laughs> who now works with Nick Jonas and yeah. does all kinds of great stuff, who's a great dude. Uh -huh. uh, Russ Dickerson, who yeah. has a marvelous career uh -huh. as a country artist now. Yep. Um, he showed up on a Spotify ad recently for Did me. Did he really? Yeah, and Cody Fry. Those wow. were the three artists. And I remember uh, looking at them and just being, like, and f being floored because they're all incredible. Yeah. And kind of just thinking, like, I don't belong here. These guys huh. are the real deal. And then, like, all of them have become friends, and, like, yeah. it's kind of crazy. It's funny, like, there's, not just in music, but in everything, there are all these imaginary barriers that we put up yes. uh, that are just not real. Mm -hmm. Like, we, whenever Kate and I were young marrieds, so we were 23, 24 when we got married, there was one time where we had, like, this quadruple date with some older couples that are like our age now they were like 30 it was one of those things where it was like we don't really know them but we feel like they're just going to feel super lame hanging out with all these young kids mm -hmm. and then we went to dinner and it was great and we all had fun and we all became friends and years later we talked back on that and one of my buddies who was older was like oh man we were so worried that you guys just didn't want to hang out with all the old boring people Aww. and so it was like Everybody, it's like the boys and the girls sitting on either side of the high yeah. school dance, yeah. thinking that the other one doesn't want to hang out. So your time at Belmont, you did all those things, you graduate, and then what happened? So I did uh, a music and music business degree, kind of like mm. both of them. Oh, you double majored, or was that was the, like, your emphasis? I was like three credits away from double majoring. Oh, wow. Because I originally okay. was like, I had the studio time thing from my time in Louisiana, but then I also had the personas thing, so I was interested in the music business side, mm -hmm. but I also just wanted to play drums, and I think I ended up majoring in drums just because that was the shortest degree path. So I had the music business thing and the playing thing, and I was married at the time, and the thought of like going off and touring for either Kate or I was yeah. like not enticing, so we were both like, well, let me try and get a music business job first mm -hmm. and see. And so I got a job at a publisher, at a Christian publisher. I worked at Provident Music down in oh, did uh, you? Cool Springs. Yeah, I, didn't I was our publishing administration. Oh. Uh, I was publishing an admin dude. Yeah, for I guess about two years, and um, that job was tough. Mm. I, I loved the people that I got to work with. Like I loved the songwriters. It was kind of. I think it was originally supposed to be like a, my job was like, hey, you get to be the creative dude in a room full of number crunchers and you get to be the number cruncher to all the creatives. Ah. And so like, I love new experiences. I love new things happening all day. So I thought like, well, that sounds fun. Kind of different stuff every day. Yeah. But what ended up happening was just the number crunching. Mm. Just a lot of like Excel spreadsheets and yeah. in a cubicle all day by myself. And I kind of had flashbacks of when I was at my other job in Louisiana. Hmm. I was just like, wait a second, what am, uh, 
didn't we leave our whole life there to get away from this? Yeah. And I didn't want to just look a gift horse in the mouth for a lot of reasons because I was just thankful that God was providing for us, that he had given us a job. And then also there was that part of me that thought when I would think about going out and trying to make music for a living, there was a part of me that thought, you know, you're not actually good enough to do that, right? I, and like my mind just made up all these reasons why it wouldn't work. And so I just went with the safe thing. And like, I know whenever you left your uh, like nine to five to kind of go rogue, that was like your choice that you just made. Yeah. I, I can't even say that that was how I got, that's how I moved out of my season at Provident because family Christian bookstores went bankrupt. And then- <gasps> The bankruptcy heard around the world. Oh my gosh. It's seriously, I was working at Word at the time and it was all anyone was talking about for two weeks. And I've, I still make jokes about it. Yeah. Like, uh, family Christian. I have, I have friends- uh, when so when that happened, I was one of fourteen people that got laid off at Provident, mm. and I think that was round one of two. Wow! Uh, and then I have friends that worked at Capital and at all sorts of other. I mean, like you're you're not exaggerating when you no, say it was I, yeah, it was it, it affected everything. Yeah, and so like I was kind of forced to back to the square one of just like, all right, well, what do we do with this thing? And I had, um. A friend who I had picked up there, her name was Patty Lane. And Patty was just this, she was the kindest, sweetest, but also kind of could give you a kick in the pants like mm. to like mm-hmm. get work done mm-hmm. person ever. Uh, but she was kind of like helping me through processing all this, getting laid off and like, well, what do I do next? Mm. And she was like, you now have an opportunity to take a step in a new direction and you can choose whatever direction you want. So don't just step out of fear that, you know, don't just take, don't, don't take the first opportunity that comes your way just because you're afraid that something might not come along. If it's the, if it's the right one for you and your family, do it, but don't do it out of fear. Fear is a real, real demon. Yeah, man. It, uh, it can just make you do, it can even make you do the right things for the wrong reasons too. Mm. Like I I had a, a professor, I think it was. I think it was Chester Thompson mm. who plays drums for like uh, Phil Collins and Weather Report. And he was like one of the big reasons I wanted to go to Belmont. Mm. And I went there thinking I was like going to – the thing I was going to get from Chester was like this drumming stuff. Mm. But the biggest lessons I got from him were the times that we would go and just sit down. And he's kind of this grandpa that just loves Jesus and loves his family. Mm-hmm. And he could just like see it on my face that I was like – totally operating out of fear fear that I would never make it fear that if I would come in with to him and be like Chester I got a call to do this thing and it's like I'd be playing for tips and I would be gone from my family for like six days but like if, if I don't take this then will the next call come and he was the one that was like Brandon sometimes like saying no as an act of faith is the thing that you need to do and he compared he compared it to kind of like tithing, like how like if you're a Christian and you do you give the ten percent thing, it's not just it's less about funding the church as much as it is kind of giving the middle finger to the idol of money. Mm, like yes. there's no quicker way to tell money that you have no control over me than mm. just to give it away. Mm. And like that's found. yeah, and that was kind of the same thing of that self-employed people have of like. Saying no sometimes just because it's not a good fit is a good way to give the middle finger to the idol of the phone, of that fear that, like, 
my phone's never going to ring again because yeah. I would stare at it and try and shoot it with my mind bullets yeah. and make people call me to play. <laughs> it's ever it's ever present, especially now. But I will tell you this because I know that folks who listen to this podcast, some of them are self-employed, some of them are doing the nine to five thing. And both of those are awesome. Yeah. Kate will tell you that like some afternoons she just kind of comes home and I've just like kind of gone dark <laughs> where I've just like, I don't know what I'm going to do in, in my life. I don't know what the future yeah. holds. But then the next day I'm okay, yeah. you know, because something happens and I'm fickle. But all that yes. being said, I would rather – I would never trade those two or three days a month for waking up every day That's right. and going to do something that I knew didn't matter. I, like when I yeah. was – one of those jobs, I remember coming home and like – crying on Kate's shoulder and just saying nothing I did today mattered, which like is probably not true. Right. Uh, but that was my mindset at the time. Like she is the hero of that story. Mm. Like the fact that I had, I had a job interview later and, uh, when, whenever I was trying to decide what to do, I like did the nerdy thing of like my wife's a teacher and I asked, I said, Kate, can you bring me home a whiteboard? And I took this big whiteboard and I drew on it. Like just it probably looked like a beautiful mind. Like yes, just right. nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If someone saw it, they would probably think John I was Nash. crazy. Yes. Yeah. But I like tried to say, all right, what are the things I feel like I'm good at? Yeah. And I kind of scribbled those down. And I was like, what are the skills that I think I have? And I wrote that down. And then I said, what are the things that I want in my next vocation? And I like had made two tiers. Like it has to have this. The second tier was like it'd be good if it had this. And then I made a pros and cons column of being self-employed and nine to five. And I showed Kate when she got home, and she was like, "Okay, any opportunities that come your way, this is what you measure it against." A week after I got laid off, a friend of mine pulled a favor to get me an interview at another company, and I went into the interview. And after about like twenty minutes, I was going through the rubric in my mind, and I was like, "This ain't it. Mm -hmm. This I would be miserable doing this thing." And I, I left the interview and I called Kate, kind of sick to my stomach. And I was like, hey, just so you know. She's like, how's the interview go? And I said, I turned it down. They wanted me to do it because I had the skill set. But I was like, I just don't think that's the thing. Yeah. And she was like, whew, okay. Yeah. Well, let's keep looking. There was one time when I was really um, – down and I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do. I want to do this thing. And then she said, we'll do that thing. And I said, well, I don't maybe want to do that. Maybe I want to do something else. And I was just going back and forth. And she just like almost grabbed me and just said, what, like when you think about it, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to make music I like with people I enjoy being around. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, then do that. Hmm. And it was like this moment of clarity of like, oh, maybe it doesn't have to be as hard as I've made it out to be. Sometimes when you do that work to understand what are the what are the underlying ingredients of my jambalaya? Oh hey. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you suddenly realize that maybe it wasn't that I wanted to make all my money doing that thing. Yeah. Maybe I just really need that thing. Great music, great people. And and the money once you've separated it, once you've yes. moved those things aside, then it all becomes just a little bit more clear. Yeah. Well, it helped it helped inform the type of crowds that I wanted to be in. Yeah. And so like right before I got laid off, Sarah Davison, who is a piano player here in town and she has a band okay. called High Road. I played with them a few times while I was working at Provident and she was like she called me the week before I got laid off and mm -hmm. said, "Hey, I know you have a job, but here are like 30 dates through the rest of the year. We would love to have you on." And at the time, I was like, oh, my gosh, Sarah, I would love to do that, but I can't because I got this job. And so the day that I got laid off, I called her. You're kidding me. And I was like, Sarah, do you still need someone? Because my schedule has opened way up. 
my schedule is so wide Yeah, right and now. so she was like, yes, absolutely, come on board. Uh, oh, wow. And so at the time, I thought it was just kind of a middle in-between thing to kind of help get me to the next thing. But through that, um, I met Ashley Bain. That was how you met Ashley Bain. Yes. At the time of Getty Music. Yes. So Ashley at the time was working. And the, another thing that you'll see from like any of the jobs and experiences I have is uh, – even in the ones where at the time I kind of thought that it was a failure or that it was wasted time or it was a lost cause, I always emerged from it with people. Yes. Like with like a relationship or a friendship, not even ones that would necessarily advance my career, but just like I walked away with people that enriched my life. Mm. And like whenever I left Provident, I had Patty. Yeah. And I had a couple other people that were just instrumental in helping steer the next phase. And then when I work with High Road, who I still play with sometimes. Uh, I met Ashley, who was working for Keith and Kristen Getty, who are these two Irish hymn writers here in Nashville. And Ashley, uh, who, and in addition to tour managing, also is a great violinist. Mm-hmm. And so she would sub for High Road uh, a couple times, and we hung out maybe a few weekends. And she said, hey, if you thought about doing tour management, I think you would be good at it. Mm-hmm. You're, like, responsible, and you're a good hang, mm-hmm. and you should think about doing this thing. And I was like, huh, I never really thought about that. And so we kind of just kept in touch. And then she needed someone for the Christmas tour, mm-hmm. for the for Keith and Chris and Getty's Christmas tour. And then I went and met her and her husband, Jeremy, and they were interviewing me and another guy for the for the stage manager job. And they ended up going with the other guy, which is, I was like, okay, well, that's fine. That door is kind of closed. Yeah. And... Uh, we, my wife and I, Kate, were just like, well, we'll go to Louisiana for Thanksgiving and kind of see all of our family. And I think that they made it through like three days of rehearsal with the other dude and the first three or four shows. And I got this call from Ashley that was like, hey, are you still interested in this job? Because we hired the other guy, but he personality wise is not a good fit, uh, even though he had more experience. And we feel like even though you don't have as much experience, uh, we feel like you'd be a good hang. Do you want this thing? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And she said, okay, bus calls in Nashville tomorrow night at eight. And I was in Baton Rouge. And I was like in the middle of taking uh, mater- like pregnancy pictures with Kate. We oh have my a gosh. friend there. And so I was, I called her and I was like, hey, I think we need, I need to go to Target to buy some gig clothes and we need to drive to Nashville tomorrow to, wow. so I can get on this bus with these strangers that oh. I have never met. And, uh, to this, for this job that I have never done. Mm. But I had a friend who thought I would My be good gosh. at it. yeah. And so I did, and I jumped aboard a moving train, it felt like. Yeah. Because you know those tours. It's like oh, yeah. three buses, 25 adults, like 10 kids. And a, and a cacophony of yeah. human beings. So I went from like being self-employed, kind of trying to figure out what I was doing, to working this tour that was playing Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy Center and mm-hmm. Fox Theater in Atlanta. I was afraid that at any moment I was going to be exposed for a fraud, mm. that I was the faker in the group that like kind of was just pretending. I was worried that people were going to find out that I just didn't have everything together, but no one has everything together. That's right. I mean, That's the right. pastor at our church says, you can either be impressive or you can be known, but you can't be both. Like if you, the closer you get to know somebody, the more you realize like, okay, wait a second, this guy doesn't have it together either. But anyway, so through working with the Gettys, I was like, okay, maybe I have this skill set. And then she and Jeremy left to start their own uh, touring advancing company, Bain Pro. 
And that was right on the time that Ashley found out that she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so she said, I am going to have a baby, so I'm not going to go travel with these artists. Would you be interested if I advance the shows? Would you go out and road manage some of these artists? And I was like, sure, who are your artists? And she said, the one that I need now is a guy named Andrew Peterson. And I, for years, had been an Andrew fan. But he has this big Christmas show that he does every year at the Ryman that we went to the first year we came to town. And it was the first, it was one of the first moments that we left that night thinking Nashville is the greatest city on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. So she was like, yeah, it's this guy, Andrew Peterson. And I was like, Ashley, I'm not even going to try and be cool. Please make this happen for me. Yeah, good. I would love to. And so That's she was like. refreshing to hear. Yeah, I was like, I'm not going to try and play, you know, not do the Nashville thing of, oh, let me check my, let me check my calendar. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, no, I was like, please, please, please do this thing. Uh-huh. And it worked out. And so I started traveling with Andrew uh, in May, May. It's been two and a half years now. I road managed, but I loved his music. And so I kind of tried to play cool with the yeah. I also play drums thing. I went out of my way to not just be like, hey, just so you know, I also do this thing. Uh, Because I genuinely was just so excited to be a part of what Andrew was doing. Yeah. One of the reasons why I really like the tour manager thing and the stage manager thing, I have a friend who's now a brilliant mastering engineer. It's a guy named Joe Causey, and he owns Voyager Mastering. And um, he was like a guitar player. And then he produced, and then he had all these producer buddies that he loved to work with, but most of the time it's like, well, the budget's only got one producer. And he just kind of, he's told me, he was like, man, I just got tired of competing with my friends and I wanted to work with them. Mm. So I found the circles I wanted to be in and looked for a job that they needed, and I was like, they need a good mastering guy. So he picked up that skill set. And that's kind of how I treated the tour manager thing, as I was like, where are the circles that I want to be involved in? What are the needs that are there? Uh, and through my work with Ashley, I was like, people need good road managers. Yeah. I feel like I could do that. And even if they already have a drummer, if they don't need a drummer, because Andrew, when he travels a lot of time, it's just him and a guitar. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, that doesn't change the fact that I want to be around that. That's right. And artists like him and through through her and through some other people, I work with Jared Anderson, who we talked about, mm-hmm. and Audrey Assad, and a lot of these other people that if I had just showed up with my name and a pair of drumsticks... Uh, they would have had no place for me, not That's anything right. personal. And so I just kind of had to decide, well, like, where do I want to be? What's the need there? And where do my skills like intersect with that need? Mm-hmm. And if eventually it morphs into something else, great. But I was just so, uh, so stoked just to be in the room. Uh, yeah. And I'll give you the short answer on the drum thing is that, um, Andrew's middle son, Asher, uh, just graduated high school, but he also plays drums and he's like this entrepreneurial mind. He's okay. like so sharp and he's so funny, but he made this like music festival at their house called Balaya Jam, like a play on Jambalaya. Okay. And That's he like brilliant. Yes. And he like did the big thing, like sold tickets, brought in a food truck. They what? built a stage. Like it's, this, it was this big thing. That's overwhelming. And, yeah. And so they did it at, at Andrew's house and Andrew texted me and a guy named Greg LaFollette, who played for Waterdeep, and then Andy Osinga, who has done a million things. Uh, and he was like, dudes, we're putting together a dad band for Belia Jam. You are kidding. And he was like, Asher wants us to do a couple like classic rock covers. What'd you do? Which we did uh, Take It Easy <laughs> by the Eagles. Oh, my gosh. And we did, what was the other one? We did... You Wreck Me by Tom Petty. Oh, my gosh. Bunch, dunch, you wreck me, okay. babe. I remember feeling this feeling of, like, I had watched 
Osinga and Andrew and Greg all do these great things. And I remember being so stoked that we were playing music, but I looked around and I was wearing a sombrero. And <laughs> like the first time that I was playing with some of these like heroes, I was like, okay, we're playing Take It Easy while I wear this sombrero. To teenagers, I assume. Yeah, and yes. I was like, like the humor of it was not lost on me of just like, okay, well, I guess this is the way that this thing's gonna happen. I mean, there's really, when you look back on it, there's no other way it could have happened. That's right. And so then like Andrew and I had a conversation later where he was like, well, wait a second, so you're an actual drummer. Huh. Like you actually do the thing. Right. And I was like, yeah, I do. And so uh, he started doing some smaller like band shows. And so I'd gotten tour managed and then also play drums. And then this last year for Behold the Lamb, and he, they needed a tour manager. And Andrew kindly threw my name in the hat and was like, and I think he would also be a good fit to play drums. And so wow. thankfully Christy and the, his management team went for it. And then it's this like – group of these amazing musicians and the show is great and we played the Ryman we like yeah. for the first time that in was my your life. first time yes. that was your first time on the Ryman yes do you do you feel like because I didn't grow up watch or listening to the Opry I really yeah. didn't come from a country perspective oh, but I just feel like every musician in Nashville kind of a little bit longs for that first time you stand on the Ryman stage oh man and get to do your music thing in whatever yeah. form that looks like. Well, I mean, aside from the fact that that building is magic. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. straight up. For me, it was mega, it was mega emotional because like when you look at it through the lens of everything I had done before, that like there have been multiple points in my career where I thought music just was going to be a thing I used to do. Mm. And then to like, go from those valleys and just to have kept going and then to make it to playing, even if it's just one, and like I told Andrew after the show, I was like, if this is the only time this ever happens, it's been worth it mm -hmm. to have played one sold out show at the Ryman. And like the thing about that building that's so great is that it's 2000 people, but they're right on top of you. Yeah. And so I could look out in the audience and see my, like I could see my friends and my parents were there and I could see my parents and I could like, I get kind of like teary-eyed thinking about it, but I could see Kate mm. and like that moment. I'm crying now. I know. Like really? Well, because she was your give, hero I know. that whole time through all, all of those yes. moments of, you know. And that moment was hers just as much as it was mine, mm. you know. And uh, when we got married and her, we wrote our own vows because we're just those people. Oh, okay. <laughs> and she vowed, uh, I mean, among many other funny things, she vowed that she would be my biggest fan and my loudest cheerleader. Uh, hmm. And so, like, that was the greatest. That was the greatest thing that wow. we got that That's huge. together. And I could look out and see her. And so we got done, and the the show it ends with like uh, the the whole premise of the show is that Andrew has this album called "Behold the Lamb of God," which tells the story from creation all the way to the incarnation of Jesus. And uh, it ends kind of with these last kind of big eight bars of like, whatever you got left in the tank, you got to leave mm -hmm. it on the field. So I was playing this big thing and I was looking out and I was seeing everybody and I kind of hit the last note and a friend of mine sent me a video because I had a couple people over in the audience videoing uh, and I hit the last note and I just collapsed on my drums. Just huh. 
yeah. fall down. And I'm just like weeping Oh wow! that this sort of thing could happen. Yeah. You also have taken a semi full-time, uh, yes. you have a desk. So in a way it's kind of a yeah. desk job, but you do have this recent role of kind of revisiting your roots of admin of publishing stuff. Yeah. But on a team, cause mm-hmm. I've read the bios from everybody on the team. Uh, it's a team of music folks actually. Yep. Yeah, it's a company called Hearts Bluff Music. And um, when I got laid off from Provident, so that would have been 2015, I guess, uh, Patty Lane, the Mm. same lady, she set me up with the president of this company, Hearts Bluff, the guy named Scott Parker, just like, hey, I feel like you guys should connect. And I was kind of taking meetings with anyone who would meet with me at the time. Mm -hmm. And so he and I went to Edge Hill Cafe and talked for like an hour and a half or so. And he was just so kind. And he kind of told me about their business and he was like, well, we don't really have anything for you now, but I'll keep your resume. And like, I had been in Nashville long enough to be like, okay, buddy, Mm -hmm. sure, sure Mm -hmm. you'll keep my resume. And so I left there and kind of forgot about it. And after I had done the tour manager thing and I was like, I had made it a couple years self-employed, Scott emailed me out of the blue. Hey man, I'd love to get together and get coffee. And I was like, okay, that's weird. And I came to the office and I didn't realize it was an interview at the time because I wasn't looking for work. I was playing music and uh, tour managing. And he was like, we need someone, but it's only three days a week. And uh, it can, some of those days can be remote if you need to be working, you know, if you need to be working from a plane or from an airport or from a tour bus. Uh, and we were, I was like, what? okay. That's kind of crazy. And so I told, I called Kate on the way home and I was like, this thing is happening and it sounds like it's too good to be true. And, and did it fit your whiteboard yeah. list of requirements? And I was like, and I looked at it and I was like, okay, this, this could actually work. And I could still keep doing the stuff that we have. And we, at that point in time, our little girl was like six months old and we were kind of like looking for ways for her, uh, just to like kind of help provide more for her. And I was like, I think this is a thing that could work. And so I accepted it. And what we do is we, uh, we purchase music publishing catalogs. Mm -hmm. So we buy up songs like little businesses. Mm. And again, like I was saying earlier, I didn't know that that existed, Mm -hmm. but either way, that's like the three main things that I do is that I work at Hearts Bluff kind of as like a catalog valet. So whenever someone hits the door with a song or a catalog that they want to sell, I guide them through that process of like selling and everything. Mm. Uh, so I do the Hearts Bluff thing and then I do tour management and then I do drums and then sometimes those things, um, intermingle but yeah it's kind of crazy i like i can't remember who said it so i'm like misattributing a quote um it may have been dave barnes but he was in another interview that he was giving he talked about have those of us that are like self-employed and have multiple different avenues of income he equated it to like tending three or four different fires yeah and like you can sometimes one will go out and so you move over and kind of tend the other thing and then you notice one is kind of burning hot so you're like oh i'm gonna go and Spent, you know, put some kindling on that. And the whole theory is that, like, if you have three or four things going on, then chances are at least one of them is always going to be burning. Yeah. Um, which kind of feels true, it right? It is. I do. I think that feels very accurate. I wish that there was more of, like, a accepting attitude towards that. Like, if, like, we know the feeling of, like, uh, there's a guy who I went to school with at Belmont that played drums for a while, and now he makes candles. Like that's like his job. He makes, he stopped playing drums and he's doing candles. 
I, I was talking to a friend about that and I was like, isn't that kind of crazy that he is making candles? And my buddy was like, oh, so the drum thing didn't work out. Oh, no. And I was and, and I kind of I kind of like turned my nose up a little bit of just like, well, wait a second. Why can't it just be that he has this other thing that he likes to do? That and fire was just, burning bright at yeah. that moment. And this drum fire has kind of gone out for yeah. a second and you can always revive it. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think about the place that I come from, which is the Midwest, which is they would say something like that. Yeah. Because we, we have the great joy of living in this beautiful bubble of we kind of all understand what everybody's going through in a way when yeah. you are self-employed and when you are quilting something together with music or with something else. Um, but I, that kind of language and that kind of narrative was something I grew up hearing all the time. Oh, she used to be this thing. Yeah. She used to whatever, but she didn't. She just, she wasn't good enough, I guess. And we find out, we come to find out that it's actually about just staying in the game. It's actually yes. just about doing it. Yeah. Just kind of like, Who's the one that's going to stick around the longest? And who's the one that's... Man, I, that's that was kind of the attitude that I tried to take in each one of my like myriad jobs that I've had over the years. As I was like, okay, I'm just going to try and show up and do a good job and be kind to the people that are around me mm-hmm. and hopefully just sow some seeds and just be obedient today. You know, the Lord has called us to be excellent in what we do. And even if it's like... The thought of do of the thought of waking up and going to do what I have to do today makes me uh, not excited. Like I'm still called to excellence, and I'm still called to be kind. There's a there's a great book. Do you know Wendell Berry? You know that author? I don't. Well, Wendell Berry is this farmer in Kentucky, who is also like a poet, and at this he writes like marvelous fiction. He like made this little fictional town in Kentucky called Port William, and he writes novels from each of the different towns' residents' perspectives. So, like, they all show up in each other's books and stuff. It's crazy. That's precious. Like, as a literary thing, it's kind of insane that he can do that. Anyway, he has one book called Jaber Crow, and all of my friends were like, you need to read Jaber Crow, and when you get to the end, you're going to weep. I was like, neat. Uh, So (laughs) Let me get right on that. I finally did, and Jaber Crow is the barber in this little town. And, uh, I'm already weepy. I know. And he like he kind of celebrates the the routine of it and the like staying close to home and all that kind of stuff. But his whole story is kind of crazy because he went off and he lived in a boarding school and then he was like uh, doing odd jobs and he went to seminary and he dropped out of seminary. And so he's like – and later on in the book he's kind of looking back on his story and kind of talking about it. And he talks about how you know someone could look at my path – and say that it was a really winding, twisting and turning path. But in hindsight, I now see that it was really the straightest path to get to where I am now. Mm. And there's really no other way I could have gotten here other than to do all of those other things. Mm. Uh, and there's this great quote that I love. He says, uh, I have had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me, or I have gone to it, mainly by way of mistakes and surprises. Hmm. I wanted to end on that final quote because we often believe that if we just do that one next thing, we'll be on the path to accomplish all our dreams. I simply don't believe that to be true. The evidence just doesn't support it. We need to continue to show up to do good work, and surprises are bound to happen to us just like they did and continue to do for Brandon. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you to Ryan of Sick Island Studios right here in Nashville for the audio help. And thank you to Brandon for joining me for this very special episode. I hope your day is filled to the brim with hope for that which lies ahead. We'll see you next time. 